Welcome back to another episode of A Daisy Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Daisy Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai. And I want to thank you for tuning in today. Whether this is your first time joining us or you've tuned in before, it means so much to me that you found yourself here. If you like what you hear, please take a second and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you find your podcasts. This site was started when I asked myself a fundamental question. How can I use my life to be the change that I want to see in the world? My personal life's journey has been forever transformed since I started to interview guests for this series. The thought leaders whom I've been so privileged to meet, like the one you're about to hear from today, have unabashedly shared their narratives, perspectives, and powerful voices about overcoming obstacles and issues facing our communities. And today, we are so excited to be joined by Democratic candidate for Florida's House 35, Rishi Baga. Rishi is a proud product of Florida's public schools, and he went on to earn a degree in political science from University of Central Florida and a law degree and Master of Laws in Law and Government from Washington College of Law at American University. Rishi is seeking to bring new leadership to Florida. Driven by his principles, faith, and a strong belief in the American dream, throughout his career, Rishi has fought for justice, fairness, and common sense solutions. Rishi, welcome to the show. How are you, Sonia? I am so well, and we are so excited to welcome you. And I always like to start out my interviews with guests, many of whom are from the South Asian diaspora, about their immigrant journey or immigrant roots, because I think for listeners, it really helps us to understand who you are as a human being and as a candidate for Florida's House District 35. And I know you were born in Toronto, Canada to parents who immigrated here from India, seeking the proverbial American dream. And your father then worked as a taxi cab driver in Canada, while your mom worked as a bank assistant. But I think what's really inspiring is that after years of saving up, they went on to become small business owners, and they bought a small 26-room motel in Niagara Falls. And as recent immigrants to this country, without a family legacy or funds to fall back on, instead of hiring employees, they did everything themselves, from cleaning and making repairs, to rooms, to checking guests in and out. And what's really noteworthy and inspiring, and I stumbled upon this as I researched for this podcast, is you were right there with them. And some of your earliest memories are of helping your mom with vacuuming and and riding around on her maid cart. So I would really like to hear more about how those experiences shaped you and how this entrepreneurial journey then led you to Orlando, Florida with your family in 1992. 
Yeah. Well, Sonia, first of all, thank you so much again for having me. It's uh, awesome. You know, it's wonderful to be on this and kind of share my story and, and have the ability to do that. And thank you for what you do, because I think it's wonderful to highlight these stories. It's really not about me. I think it's about our community and our community has so many of these just interesting immigration stories and how we all get here. So it's it's nice to have the opportunity to, to, to or have a place where that's highlighted. You know, you, the immigrant experience is central to it's central to who I am. It's central to you know how we got here into my parents' story. You know, there's there's a lot of interesting parts to it all, right? My family were Punjabi. We came out of a, a partition family, and so my parents were the first ones born in India in their family, and then them again. I guess so. They kind of grew up with an immigrant experience in their own way. They weren't native to Delhi, and and you know had to learn and adjust, and their whole family had to learn and adjust into living in a new place. And by the time my you know dad hit his teens he wanted to explore further and eventually you know move to Canada so yeah I, I grew up with that kind of background and that that sort of immigrant experience and I think that that's always been central to us you're right my parents owned a uh, 26 room roadside motel in Niagara Falls Canada which you know back in the day there weren't any uh, casinos in Niagara Falls so if you lived there, there or did business there, it was really only during the summer times when people came to see the falls. So we would go back and forth between Niagara Falls and Toronto. In Toronto, my dad continued to drive cab and in uh, Niagara Falls, we ran this motel in the summers and uh, early fall and then we would go back and forth. Eventually, how we you had asked how we came to Orlando. When I was about ten years old, my grandfather passed away, and um, it would really hit my dad pretty hard. And so we decided, you know, we need a little change of scenery, so let's go on vacation. And we decided to go down to Orlando. So we actually drew, drove down here. All of us got into a car, and uh, we spent about a week driving here and stopped along the way. And we spent a week driving around Florida and my dad loved it. He just, he was just shocked by this tropical place that he hadn't been to before. <laughs> and it reminded him, I guess, of India in some respects. And yeah. uh, finally, the last day we were here, he decided to call a real estate agent. And he said, you know, if you ever run across some business that's on sale, I don't have, you know, money to buy something huge, but if something comes up, you know, here's my number, give me a call. And we drove right back to Toronto afterwards. Well, that was August of 1992. For those folks who may be from Florida or know folks in Florida, they know August of 92 is when Hurricane Andrew hit. And so, you know, it, it caused, of course, a lot of problems to a lot of people, a lot of destruction. It also led to growth of a lot of new industries and, and a lot of changes. So some businesses did, in fact, go up for sale afterwards. So my dad got a call a couple weeks afterwards saying, hey, you know, there's a hotel down here that's not doing so well after the hurricane. And if you're interested, I can talk to them to see if, if, uh, <laughs> if, you're, if you want to come down here. And so my dad didn't actually have the money to buy it. He leased it. He actually sold his taxi plates, took all the money he'd saved up just to lease it for two years in the hopes that he'd make enough money to buy it at the end of that two years. So that was December of 92. Again, we came here on vacation in August of 92. And by December of 92, we'd packed up our car again and drove down to Florida, this time to live here. 
so, you know, we, we've kind of uh, been in Florida ever since then. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely amazing. I think what strikes me is really your exposure to problem solving. I mean, and this entrepreneurial background, because I'm going to be diving into questions about how you really are supportive and have some very concrete ideas about how um, every Floridian and especially those in your district can actually prosper with the right policies implemented. So we're going to be diving into some of that, but just based on your anecdotal tales, it, it really is an interesting, interesting background and, and referencing the partition. We have a lot of listeners in India and that's really a serious, serious trauma to come from and appreciate how that informed your parents as well. Amazing, amazing in insights. And I know you are a proud product of Florida's public schools. And after high school graduation, you went on to attend the University of Central Florida, where you earned a degree in political science and then went on to the Washington College of Law at American University, where you graduated with both a JD and a Master of Laws in law and government. And apart from the fact that these are extraordinary academic accomplishments, when we pause and think that you and your family are really recent immigrants to the United States, it's even more impressive. And this drives you in your policymaking. Now, you believe strongly in public education and embrace the concept that is a fundamental key to both a child and a society's success. And I like how you combine those two together. I think you're so spot on with that. And you point out on your campaign site, which I will have a link to in the podcast notes, but it is rishibaga.com, www.rishibaga.com, that even with proposed increases in funding, Florida ranks 43rd when it comes to expenditures per student and 49th in average teacher pay, which is pretty surprising. So can you elaborate more upon why you assert that it is critically important to increase teacher pay, promote teacher-led assessment, and reduce classroom sizes across Florida and for House District 35? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I guess this sort of comes up as part of my story is education has been central to my life. And I tell folks this when I go around the district is I'm an Orange County public school kid. I actually went to school here. And so I have, you know, fond memories of, of school. I still have teachers that I keep in touch with. In fact, I have a close teacher friend of mine who's... I you know, history class I was in and uh, he is now a voter <laughs> and is a supporter. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of neat to have that, um, that all come around. You know, I, you, you kind of brought up my, you know, problem solving. And I think that comes a lot from that sort of immigrant experience, right? I, I went on to law school partially because my parents as immigrants, you know, trying to figure out how to run it, how to run a business, ran into so many problems trying to run that business. And as a result, they, you know, would be faced with contracts and, and other things that needed to be read. And so I kind of became the reader in the family. It was always the one, you know, reading everything I possibly could. And, you know, with English teachers helps and things like that, <laughs> I, I sort of built this background. And I think that eventually is what led me to go on and become a lawyer. But, but all that education background was really central to me. Another thing that was really central to me is uh, debate. I sort of grew up as a, you know, young Indian kid who, you know, we have some cultural things that tell us not to speak back or, or kind of to stay quiet. <laughs> 
sometimes. <laughs> so we we're we're sort of uh, not necessarily encouraged to be the loud one in class or or to you know make a big deal out of what of our what our opinions are. So I had a teacher in uh, ninth grade who was my English teacher, and she read some of uh, the work I had, and she said, you know, you are really you're an excellent writer. You would be a great debater if you went on and went to the debate team or or tried to take my debate class next year. And I, that just the concept of standing in front of folks and speaking scared me so much, but she encouraged me over and over again to, to do this. And eventually I did. And I became the captain of my high school's debate team and was competing around the country in these debates. So, you know, I, I bring it up because I think, I think education can literally change your life. It can literally change the, the trajectory of your life, you know, and I want to make sure that that experience is available to to other students and students in my district. One of the things that concerns me is that, um, like you mentioned, Florida has unfortunately fallen to the place where we're spending, you know, where I think we're 43rd in how much we spend per student, 49th in teacher pay. And so we are losing teachers left and right really great teachers teachers who you know many of them were trained here in Florida it was their dream to become teachers I've spoken to some of these folks and they've taught for a year or two and they just feel so completely unsupported and the pay is so low that they just feel like they have to leave and so we're in a situation I think this is a number from about a week ago but school actually started today in our district here in Orange County for uh, for folks in, in public schools. And I think it was about a week or two ago, we still had 9,000 teachers. We were 9,000 teachers short here in oh Florida. So, you know, wow. what are these kids going to do, right? There are proposals. I know Texas has done this. And this is a proposal that's come up here, which is to allow co- college students to teach. There are proposals that are out there to have veterans teach And again, you know, it's nothing against college students or veterans, but this means we're not having trained professionals teach. And, you know, we lose so much in the process of that. So, you know, I'll also bring this up because I am Indian American and I'm, you know, very proud of that. For for those of us who are Desi, we know how important education is or how much it's been, I think, programmed in us (laughs) that education is important. And so it, it, it scares me that students uh, now who go to public schools in Florida are, you know, facing the prospect of of not having teachers who are committed teachers, committed professionals. And this past uh, legislative session, there were there were some efforts to actually um, increase teacher pay. And if I'm not mistaken, the starting salary for teachers was increased. But those teachers who've been in the profession for a long time, you know, they're still not getting paid. And so there's really no incentive for them to stay around. So many of them have, uh, you know, become, I'd say, political targets these days because of all the other education stuff. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But um, this is a real focus for me. I, I think this is one thing where we have to find the money to pay teachers and uh, and make sure that that they're valued and, and their pay reflects that. Um, that way, that's the only way we're going to be able to recruit and retain teachers here in Florida. So that's a real focus for me. You know, another larger policy thing is in the last 20 years in Florida, there's been this move to take money away from public schools and put it into charter and private school vouchers. And if you look at the evidence, the evidence is pretty clear 
uh, where we can find it because not there's not always as much transparency with these schools as you would for, have for a public school. But where you can actually see the evidence, it's quite clear that the outcomes are equal to or worse than a public school. So in other words, we've been spending all this money and taking money out of public schools, but our students are no better for it. And so it's really important to me that we have the pendulum sprints, uh, you know, swing the other direction and we start reinvesting back in our public schools because I, I really do think that public schools are um, the single most important thing we can do to help uh, families and, and to help our, our society at large. Those are such invaluable perspectives. And I, I agree. Like, think of it. You're recounting this experience with a teacher how many years ago that lit a fire within you. And I can recount the same. My fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Hale, probably not alive right now, but I will never forget the impact she had upon me in, in my public school year in fourth grade. So I'm with you. This is an amazing perspective we don't hear too often. So I know that as immigrants or, or those with immigrant roots and ties to India, the world's largest democracy, it is especially important to those from our diaspora that a strong educational system, be inclusive of healthy debate, and to be a place which allows and is even a catalyst for the studying of diverse viewpoints. And you are no exception to this as you wholly approve of open and honest discussion of any age appropriate educational theory or perspective. Now, Florida has made national and international news recently when in April of this year, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a measure known as the Parental Rights in Education Bill, which critics have labeled the Don't Say Gay Law. Essentially, the bill aims to limit LGBTQ discussion in schools, and it's also on the front lines of the battle over how much say parents should have in their children's education. Now, Risha, you strongly oppose the Don't Say Gay Bill and the Stop Woke Bills recently passed by the Florida legislature. You've stated that these bills burden free expression in schools and create a host of other problems for students, teachers, and administrators. And you just stumbled upon or you just referenced some of them as it pertains to 9,000 some teachers that are not in the system currently teaching. And so these are more obstacles that are going to be put in the way of these of these folks that are simply trying to educate our youth. Can you offer more insights on why you and many others, I might add, find this bill so deleterious and harmful? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, let's start with our last topic, right? We have teachers who are leaving the profession in droves and we already have a teacher shortage. And so, uh, you know, we have to consider how does this law impact that? And to me, there's no question that it makes it harder for a teacher to teach. You know, a lot of folks who have been supporting this law have this common refrain they use, which is, if you're against this law, it's just because you haven't read it. And if you actually do read the law, which I have, <laughs> it's quite clear that it is just as bad, if not worse, than you know what uh, those of us who oppose it suspect. So here's basically what, and let's talk about the this you know don't say gay bill for a second. The, the, the bill is, you know, considered the parental rights and education bill, as you said. And ultimately, there's a few different components to it. The most problematic component, which is what we consider the don't say gay section of it, says that if you, that no classroom is allowed to teach gender identity, sexuality, sexual orientation between kindergarten through third grade. 
Um, and then after third grade, you can only teach or discuss these topics if they are considered appropriate. So, you know, again, at, f- at face value, people say, well, but we shouldn't be teaching these things under three, at all, uh, you know, under uh, third grade anyway. And the reality is we're not. <laughs> this was completely <laughs> unnecessary, right? No one's actually teaching those topics. But what it does do is it, it basically eliminates the ability for it to even come up right? Why does it do that? Well, first of all, you know, you have kids whose parents are in same-sex relationships or married, etc., right? Does this mean they can't come to school and talk about their two dads or their two moms or about their, you know, uncle who, who's married to another man? I mean, basically what this does is it says you can't really talk about these topics or the teacher can't really discuss it very much, right? And then once you get past third grade. And again, no one was teaching this uh, before third grade anyway. The you know, To me, I haven't heard of anybody who teaches anything about sex ed until before fifth grade. So this was completely unnecessary, first of all. But second of all, what it does is this, it introduces this element of uncertainty by saying appropriate after third grade. Well, the question becomes, what is appropriate, right? And who makes the determination of what is appropriate or isn't appropriate? And that's where perhaps the biggest issue comes in. And look, I'm a lawyer. I'm a defense lawyer. (laughs) So this, you know, sets bells off in my mind, which is if a parent thinks that this is inappropriate, they can go file a lawsuit against the school district. And so this is a huge problem because ultimately, what is it doing? It has a chilling effect, right? This basically means that any parent who hears that their child was talking about or hearing about subjects related to sexual orientation or gender or anything, even after third grade, has the ability to, to you know, allege that it was inappropriate and thus file a lawsuit against the school. So what is a school district going to do? A school district is basically not going to take a chance and say, let's just not talk about these issues at all. Right. And I think that that's really what the the purpose of this was here is to basically say, don't talk about sexuality. Don't talk about uh, orientation. Don't talk about identity in schools at all, because if you do, you know, you might face a lawsuit. And so it's better to just avoid those topics completely. First of all, let's look at the burden that places on a teacher right? How is a teacher going to respond? How is the teacher going to discuss these issues? What if a child comes to their teacher asking about orientation or needing help because of their own identity or orientation, right? What are they going to do? Because is the teacher allowed to discuss it or not, right? What if they don't have the parent's support? If the teacher discusses it, does that mean that the parent can now bring a lawsuit against the school district? And is the teacher going to get in trouble for it now? So we're basically, you know, A, we're not paying teachers enough. And on top of that, we're placing this additional, you know, ridiculous burden on top of them. And and we expect them to be able to teach in that situation, right? We're opening the door to, you know, to frivolous lawsuits left and right. I tell my Republican friends this. Well, listen, (laughs) you know, you're against frivolous lawsuits. This is asking for frivolous lawsuits. And it's going to ask the taxpayers to to pay for it. So, you know, I, I think this is wrong in a variety of ways. 
but I can also connect it to my own experience and why it's so important, you know, to me, you know, I don't have, uh, you know, I'm cisgendered male, <laughs> but, you know, when I first moved to school, uh, when I first moved to the U.S., I was 10 years old. My family was vegetarian. I'm still vegetarian. And you may not think that's a big deal, but, you know, for some reason in, you know, 1992, 1993 in Central Florida in a small elementary school, this was a really big deal. And so, you know, these kids already saw me as different. I was the only Indian kid in school and they were shocked that I couldn't eat the school lunches. And so, you know, what used to happen to me, I used to get pushed around in the bathrooms. I used to get meat, meat shoved down my throat. I had all kinds of bullying that I went through. And, you know, these are not things as an immigrant kid, you can, you necessarily feel comfortable talking to your parents about. I certainly didn't. So I never brought it up. I just went to school terrified. And it got to a point where I used to have to eat lunch with my teachers. You know, this is fifth grade. So look, I, I only bring this up because, you know, this is just one little part of my identity <laughs> is that I'm vegetarian. <laughs> and yet I felt so targeted. I felt so, so much like I didn't belong. I felt like I couldn't talk to anyone about this. I thought like I had no friends. And this is, you know, my little bullying experience just over being, you know, a brown kid who's vegetarian. I can't imagine what this will do for children who are facing, you know, who are wondering what their sexual orientation is, you know, who are questioning their identity or their gender, you know, it, it, this is only going to further isolate them. And, you know, these are children who already have some of the highest, you know, suicide rates, have highest depression rates, who are most likely to run away from home. For so many of them, the place where they look for shelter is their school. And is their teacher and feeling like they're in a safe space. And I am, you know, whether it does it or not, the risk, the risk that it, that, that it makes schools, you know, an unsafe place for these students is enough for us to oppose these bills. But, you know, I, I also bring up a, another bill, which is that the stop woke bill. And, and I'm sorry if I'm going on too long on this, cause I could talk about this. Not forever. at all. Not at all. Please. <laughs> but but, you know, the stop woke bill is another bill, which which incredibly problematic. And maybe that hits closer to my Indian American or, you know, or immigrant identities. This is a bill which basically has been a Republican cry against, you know, quote unquote, being woke, which is the sort of catch all phrase for anything that uh, seems to evaluate, you know, race in a critical matter. Um, and so uh, what this bill does is it does it in two different realms. First, it does it for corporate, for corporations. For, you know, if you have a company, you can no longer have, um, you know, trainings related to, to race or anything like that, that makes anyone feel like, you know, feel sorry for their race, I guess, something like that, or feel bad about what their race is. It's also incredibly ambiguous. I don't have the words exactly in front of me, but they are incredibly ambiguous. So A, you know, you're targeting these these large corporations that have, you know, training about uh, implicit bias and things like that. That's basically what they're going after. Um, and it also does that in schools. So it basically says that, you know, we can't have school lessons that evaluate race in, in this way or consider the possibility of implicit bias and, you know, any sort of lesson that makes someone feel, you know, bad about their, their race. So again, this being so ambiguous, oh, and by the way, the mechanism to enforce this is again a lawsuit against the school. 
<laughs> so again, what are we doing here, right? If a parent's upset, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or if a parent's getting questions, like a kid learns, hey, you know what? I, I heard that, um, you know, we had slavery and, and that for a long time we took advantage of folks. Uh, and I feel really bad about that. Can can we talk about that, mom or dad? <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> if, if the parent, you know, feels uncomfortable or feels that the lesson was inappropriate in their view, right, they can go file a lawsuit against the school. And so what happens? The school's not going to teach it right? The school is just not going to teach it because why would they take that risk? So again, what are we doing? We are setting up a situation where we can't have honest conversations about eight. We can't have honest conversations about race, right? I tell, you know, a, a lot of my Indian American folks who don't think we're part of this, I ask, you know, does this mean we can talk about uh, British colonialism? Can we talk right. about the British Raj? Right. I don't know. You know, or is it going to make some kid upset and therefore, you know, threaten the, the you know, school with a lawsuit? My family's sick. And as a sick, you know, I, I, I worry if we can't have honest race conversations, honest religion conversations, honest conversation, uh, conversations about bias, you know, what does that mean for, for, you know, little sick kids who are wearing their podcast to school or, 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 you know what I mean? Or have to face uh, discrimination as it is or bullying as it is. Right. So, you know, I think this is just the wrong direction. I, I so fundamentally disagree with these two laws. And, and again, you know, I, I don't think they're well thought through They're They were written in a way to make people kind of come on board with them. Yeah. I don't want my kids learning about, you know, sex before they're in third grade. And yeah, you know what? I don't want my kid to feel bad. But if you actually look at what these say and what their effect is going to be, you know, I think, I think it's, it's just a terrible effect. And we've seen it already to some small extent here. Uh, we've already had some schools who have asked for guidance, what this exactly means from the Department of Education. We've had some schools who have talked to teachers about it. There have been teachers who've considered, you know, taking rainbows down, you know, from their classrooms. You know, these types of things are happening because we just don't know what the bounds of this is going to be. And all in all, I think this is going to have the effect of taking away these conversations, which are so essential. You know, I, I'm somebody who thinks that the time to attack hate the time to prevent hate is when kids are young. They don't grow up that way. They're not born that way, right? The time to teach them inclusion is when they're young so that they grow up with those lessons and they grow up with understanding. But unfortunately, you know, this is this is becoming a thing. And the, the last thing I'll say about this is this, and then I'll stop because I know I've gone on, on this topic a bit, <laughs> is that I talk about healthy debate because I, like I mentioned to you, was the captain of my school's debate team right? We talked about slavery. We talked about race. We talked about gender and sexual orientation. We weren't afraid of that. And these are the same schools, you know, I went to, you know, 20 years ago. It didn't make me any worse or scared of who I am or upset or any of that stuff, right? It actually made me a better student. It made me a stronger student. I think I'm a lawyer today because we were able to debate those issues. And so, you know, I, I just fundamentally disagree with the premise of them. And I think, um, you know, to the extent, even if there was a problem, this is, I don't think there was one, but if there was a problem, this is the wrong way to solve it.
Well, this is such an amazingly unique perspective. Not only as an attorney, you pointed some things out that who needs more lawsuits? You're absolutely right. And and Republicans are often the first ones to say, whoa, way too many litigation friendly in this country. But it's really, really encouraging frivolous lawsuits. And then, as you stated, it's personal for you. You went to public school in is it Orange High School, Orange Elementary School, the Orange School District? So to your point, you witnessed how the school district did right by you, inspired you to be where you are today. And we I have never heard from somebody that has emerged from the Florida public schools with this um, viewpoint. So thank you so much. I, I think that this is going to shed light in a new way on this issue for so many listeners right now. I have never heard it explained this way. So really appreciate that. Now, as we approach elections across the local, state, and federal level, the issue of crime, and especially the concern with rising rates of crime and violent crime, feature very prominently in the minds of voters. I think it's very important to point out that after law school, you started working at the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office, which, for listeners who may not be aware, is the largest local prosecutor's office in the state of Florida, and one of the largest in the country. In fact, you began your career as an assistant state attorney, working in a specialized division focused on prosecuting domestic violence crimes, where you work closely with victims to assist them both in pursuing justice and obtaining necessary services. You then went on to prosecute hundreds of serious felony cases, including narcotics trafficking, burglaries, armed robberies, and other crimes. And you believe that public safety needs to be predicated upon trust between law enforcement and the communities being served. But in your estimation, this starts when we support smarter, fair, and more transparent policing. And so you'd work to limit no-knock search warrants, ensure that body and dashboard cameras are required, and you'd create a statewide police misconduct registry. As a former prosecutor going after the bad guys, you support the men when women in blue and want to expand services for police officers and first responders, including increasing access and funding for mental health services, which is really a unique concept. Because again, I see that um, it's a two-prong. You're saying communities need to be ensured that these folks are being held accountable. But at the same time, I had never heard before somebody that supports increasing access and funding for these first responders and police officers to actually seek mental health services. It's a very trauma-inclusive job. I I can't even imagine. And so to hear you talk about both sides of this is really amazing. Can you offer more about all this? Because I think it seems to be a very measured approach to supporting law enforcement while also ensuring that communities feel safe and protected. Absolutely. You know, I'm very proud of the time that I was a prosecutor. Uh, I started my career uh, in the Miami-Dade State Attorney's Office, like you said, uh, doing domestic violence crimes. And so I think that really, you know, that sort of informs my approach to even being a lawyer. Uh, that's, you know, first job, you never forget it. That was my first job as a, as a lawyer. And I, and I never forget that because it does sort of inform how I, uh, you know, how I view things. And, and I also worked very closely with police officers in that job, right? You have to constantly uh, subpoena police officers, get evidence from them, uh, have them testify for you. So there's a certain level of trust that, you know, I think you trust and rapport that you have to build um, in that position. You know, I, I, I've uh, really think of, of, of 
you know, police officers in that role that, um, you know, they say serve and protect, right? And, and, and I think that in my time as a prosecutor, I also saw how important relationships between the community and uh, police were, right? Because even if the police make an arrest, you know, it would be handed over to us as prosecutors, but we could not necessarily pursue the case or try the case or, you know, file charges or, you know, convict the person if we didn't have normal community members come forward and act as witnesses. So you had this trust relationship that was really important. You know, the police had to, you know, be able to engage with community members, talk to them, explain to them why it was important for them to testify. Um, You know, some of these domestic violence victims, uh, anyone who's done that work realizes that so many of the victims don't want to come forward. And so it really does require a bit of handholding from law enforcement, from the prosecutor's office to, to have them come forward and sort of break the cycle of violence that so many of them have experienced. But you realize what law enforcement has to do in that situation and that trust that that has to be built between these victims and witnesses. You know, the last few years we have seen these um, horrific incidents where, you know, law enforcement has targeted uh, people they've arrested, very clear racial issues that have happened, murders and deaths and, and that have been committed by police officers. And far too often, you know, the, the police officer, you know, escapes some level of accountability um, in that. So I think there's no question that some of that trust has broken down. And I really think that the best thing we can do for everyone, right, for the police, and also for the community that they protect is to restore that trust. And I think the best way to do that is transparency, right? One of the problems with these incidents that I've described where, uh, you know, these innocent victims or, or folks who've been arrested, uh, sadly, you know, are, are killed, you know, with, with law, by law enforcement is so often there is no transparency and we don't actually know what happened or, you know, the other police officers on the scene don't want to testify or, you know, it's not on tape or the tape gets released you know, down the road, and it's totally different than we thought it was. So I really think transparency is the focus because, look, we also need the police, and they they are such an essential function. And if you talk to most immigrant communities, they also want police protection, right? Police is integral to our communities. I, I go to a gurdwara, and my gurdwara has police officers from our community outside it every single week. So we feel safe going there as well. So I think that these this should always be a partnership between law enforcement and the community. And unfortunately, by uh, it turning into this sort of, well, we're on one side or, you know, we're on the other side. And I think that's happened, I think, on both sides to some extent. You know, I I think law enforcement, uh, you know, uh, talking about being, you know, there's, there's a line and we're on one side of it. I don't think that that's helpful for a discussion between the community. And I also don't think it's helpful for, for people to talk about, you know, completely defunding the police or, or uh, you know, taking away their, their pay or things like that as well, because these are folks who, who go to work every day and, uh, and, and put their lives on the line. So I think transparency is the answer. And I think we get that transparency a few different ways. You know, one way is I'm a big believer in body cameras and and dash cameras. Many out of our um, departments have those now. I think most of them do. They're not always required. I would um, 
seek legislation that made those required. I would try to establish some sort of statewide database. So if you're a police officer who's been reprimanded or, or you know, removed from the force and shouldn't be a police officer anymore, you shouldn't be able to hop from one uh, police department to the next police department and kind of start all over again without anyone knowing. Some of these things, I think, you know, it is a government job. There needs to be transparency in that as to what your past record was. Uh, and there needs to be an easy place for a department to be able to check and where, you know, where that is. And I also think, you know, police officers are scared right now. <laughs> I think if you look at you, what happened in Uvalde, I think that's clear, right? Because sometimes, you know, they are facing someone. And, and I know this, you know, going back to my time as a prosecutor, one of the things when I spoke to police officers, they expressed to me was that they were always afraid that they were showing up with, you know, their sidearm and to a crime scene and some criminal may have an AK-47 or an AR-15 on the other end. And so how are they going to respond to that with just their sidearm, right? So they too have fears, you know, and, and uh, you know, police officers who... Uh, have been through these traumatic incidents or have, you know, had to respond to mass casualty incidents. I mean, they live with a lot of trauma as well. So we have to keep that in mind. And I think the way to protect police is to, you know, make sure that we have some level of gun control. And so I'm a big believer in some common sense gun control and gun restrictions uh, that need to be passed because, Really, if, if you want to protect police officers, that's one way to do it. Make sure that when they go to a crime scene, you know, there's just not guns everywhere, right? We can make sure that responsible people uh, have guns and people who are irresponsible and shouldn't have them, you know, and would be a threat to law enforcement that they don't have guns. I think that's pretty common sense. And I think that's that's, a, that's kind of like a pro-cop cop approach. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. let's, if, if we really want to keep them safe, let's keep them safe, you know, because that's their biggest threat. And then, you know, yes, I, I do believe in, in uh, funding, you know, mental health uh, programs and whatnot for law enforcement, for first responders. They witness a tremendous amount of mental trauma. I think that often does not get diagnosed or treated. And then, you know, one has to wonder if that goes on to to lead into some of these incidents where, uh, where uh, you know, a confrontation between the police officer and a citizen could have been diffused, but instead gets escalated. Um, one has to wonder if it's, you know, if it's the mental stresses of the job. So, because we do ask a lot of police. So I, I think that these are all sort of ways we can encourage transparency. And then, you know, try to work towards correcting these issues that, that have come up. We need to go back to a time where, where go back, go to an era. I wouldn't say go back, right? Because maybe that didn't actually exist, but we need to move towards a, an approach where community and law enforcement work together. And I think that this is one way we can do it. Well, I come back to the fact that your background is so unique as a candidate. And so I certainly hope voters and, and listeners certainly will grasp the idea that we, we're hearing from an informed individual who's been a prosecutor and actually been on the same side as law enforcement. So it's not an us versus them. You're really calling for a collaboration and a coming together. And I think you're spot on. It's it's far too vitriol-filled and on opposite sides of the fence when, in fact, we, we all really want the same thing. 
been um, for our communities and our families. And Rishi, based on your upbringing and exposure to running a small business from the time you were very young, there's no question you are uniquely attuned to the needs of businesses of all sizes and the critical importance of a prosperous economy that works for all Floridians, very much at the forefront of every American's mind right now as we face sort of unprecedented inflationary rates and and repercussions therein. And you take a very common sense approach to your policies that can ensure that both Florida businesses and working Floridians share in the success. Now, for those who may not be aware, I don't know how they wouldn't be, but tourism remains a keystone and centerpiece of Florida's economy. You assert that as long as Florida remains susceptible to COVID-19, the tourism industry will continue to suffer. And you go one step further by offering that by projecting an image, which I agree with this, that Florida does not care about the pandemic. I mean, we saw that throughout this entire duration of it, that it was just sort of a non-issue. Governor DeSantis and the legislature have caused some harm to the tourism industry. And can you tell us more about how a shift in this policy and messaging could actually improve economic viability and prosperity for Florida's top industry of tourism and really help all Floridians? Absolutely. I think that, I do think harm was really caused. I mean, there are folks who maybe might wonder now if this is still an issue because uh, tourism has you know, recovered pretty substantially here in Orlando as the uh, economy has gotten better as far as you know, once restrictions and things like that were, were lifted, but mostly because you know, we started having a higher vaccination rate um, in the whole country as you know, the, the later forms of COVID and with more vaccinated people, you know, there's been, uh, you know, certainly there are still people contracting and dying from COVID, but it, it has become, you know, less an issue than it had been in the last, in, in you know, the, the first months and, and years of this pandemic. But I really do disagree with the approach that was taken by DeSantis. You know, DeSantis tried to project this image of, you know, this is kind of a, he, he likes to call this the free state of Florida. For those of us who, uh, you know, oppose DeSantis, we 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 say that that's a really funny thing based upon all the uh, the freedoms he seems to want to take away uh, here. But you know, he, he tried to project this image of, and you know, there's no rules down here. You can come down here, and you know, maybe that helped some of the tourist businesses. You know, maybe it helped places like Miami Beach or or you know places there's young, you know, college students coming to you know on on spring break uh, where it did not help is places like Orlando this is a place where we're a family-centered you know destination and so I think it really actually hurt us because so many families were unwilling to come down here or willing were you know unwilling to travel down here because they felt that it was not safe and you know for those of us who are in the industry uh, again my my mom my dad and I still own and operate a hotel it's a different one than the one I grew up in, but we uh, own and operate a hotel here today. I mean, we went through serious issues with the pandemic as far as um, getting customers. But even beyond just, you know, guests and customers, you know, we suffered and we are still suffering a lot of labor shortage. And, you know, some of that has been the sort of great resignation thing that everyone's going through. But some of it is the fact that workers didn't feel safe coming to, to work. Um, you know, my own parents, my dad's uh, in his 70s, uh, and he still doesn't miss a day of work. 
And yet he didn't go into the hotel for months. And that's because we, you know, with his existing health problems and other issues, we were afraid of him to go there because we just didn't want him to contract this and and get sick or ill or any of that stuff. So, you know, I, I think a lot of damage was done in projecting that image. And to this day with health policy, you know, there's... It came out recently that the state didn't order uh, vaccines for children here. Our health department is now run by uh, the Surgeon General of Florida is basically a, um, <laughs> he, he, he's been pretty widely discredited by, um, you know, the, the medical field at large. Uh, he, he does not believe in a lot of COVID measures or anything like that, but he's somebody who was placed in there by uh, Ron DeSantis here in Orange County, which is the, the main county that uh, has Orlando. Orlando uh, is located in, our health, our top health official uh, was fired from his job because he uh, brought up that not enough employees were vaccinated. And the, you know, governor took care of that, basically got rid of him, and he was out of a job shortly thereafter. So, you know, these sorts of things go beyond just tourism. This is a general sort of anti-science approach that's kind of seeped into state government. And it's not good for our government. It's not good for our economy. You know, take it outside of tourism. We have been trying for years in Florida and we've, you know, we've been bringing in some tech companies, but we've wanted to become a bigger tech hub. We've wanted to bring in more, um, you know, a high level industry. So much of industry in Florida is tourism. And um, as a result, a lot of it's low paying. So we want more high wage, high paying jobs. But those companies aren't going to want to come here if you're anti-science, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, if, if, and, you know, you combine that with our education issues, like I'm, you know, like I discussed a little bit earlier, and that's not a conducive environment to bringing in the kind of industry that we need, uh, that would be good for business. And that would be, you know, good for high paying jobs and Floridians. So, you know, this it's beyond vaccines at this point. It's really this anti-science approach that's existed in Florida for far too long. And we need to move away from that. So I, you know, I, I think we would be better served if as a tourist industry, we said, Hey, come to Florida. It's safe. <laughs> come to Florida. We take things seriously. Come to Florida. We've got great healthcare. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you know, I, I think we would have been better served if that was the case rather than an emergency session that the governor called to go after companies that required vaccines or that required masks. That's basically been this governor's approach. If you disagree with him, he will go after you. Um, this is a little different than the vaccine discussion, but a lot was made of this. The governor had a in in a special session, meaning it's not something that was given. You know, there was no notice of this given. There was a discussion of, and there has been a discussion of taking, and it actually passed Disney's status away. It's it's special tax status that it enjoys, uh, just because Disney spoke out against, uh, you know, don't say gay. So, you know, all in all. This is this sort of anti-science. If you go against the governor, then you're going against the whole state uh, approach that this governor has taken. And I completely disagree with it. I really hope that uh, we have his election coming up in November as well. And so I'm, I'm hoping we uh, we elect someone different because uh, I think it's been the wrong direction for Florida. 
Well, and here's the irony. I mean, by many measures, Florida, which has long attracted snowbirds and retirees, is one of the nation's, uh, quote unquote, grayest states and one of the most high risk populations as it pertains to COVID-19. So 19.1% of the Sunshine State's population is 65 and older. And our statistics have shown and science has shown they are most at risk for COVID. So really appreciate all those comments. And I think anyone who has had the pleasure of traveling to Florida can attest to its incredible natural beauty. And that's sort of what attracted your father to thinking about taking up residence there. And some of the best beaches in the world, hands down. However, you are very emphatic in stating that climate change is a real and present danger and that time to act is actually now. You believe wholeheartedly in investing in sustainable energy and resources that protect the environment, including supporting limited development impact on the environment and homeowners in relation to the 408 Eastern Extension, split oak forest impacted by the Central Florida Expressway Authority expansion and other major development projects affecting the community. And so can you tell us more about these policies and and your approach to it as a candidate? Yeah. You know, Florida is Florida because of its natural beauty. That's really what makes the state, right? We are here because it's uh, beautiful. It's a naturally beautiful state. It's surrounded by water. The weather is excellent most of the year. Right now, it's a little extra hot, but <laughs> the rest <laughs> of the year, it's fantastic. So, you know, that's why we're here. That's also why it's now the third most populous state. And so you have people moving here left and right. And that brings its own issues, you know, we have had uh, a huge upswing in our population in the last two, three years. Uh, as individuals have learned that they can work remotely and they don't have to live wherever they live, a lot of folks have moved down to Florida. And um, for the longest time, you were able to buy a house here for pretty cheap compared to other places. So a lot of people took advantage of that opportunity, but that's also priced out um, a lot of folks who live here. So we've been going through a housing affordability crisis. So you have all these different balancing issues. On one hand, you've got unbelievably high, incredible demand for new construction, for housing, for building these new communities. On the other hand, doing so is necessarily going to um, put a strain on our natural environment. I'll bring up split oak because this is uh, you know an issue you. that I do discuss with some frequency. Split Oak Forest was a, gosh, maybe 20 years ago or so, there was a lot of development coming into the southeast part of Orlando. And so in order to kind of, you know, offset the issues that were going to happen with that development, and, you know, there's turtles, there's wildlife, all these different, um, you know, things that that were in the area that this development's taking place, in order to offset the impact of that – A certain area was carved out of the county, and it was called Split Oak Forest. And this Split Oak Forest was, again, it it wasn't a particularly, you know, rich area. uh, And, you know, as far as, uh, you know, uh, all these different species and whatnot. However, because it it was built with the or, or reserved with the intention of kind of moving all of those, you know, of giving a place for all of those animals and, and uh, you know, plant species and everything to survive. This was promised in perpetuity to the residents of the county. So the, it was a promise made that we will never touch this land because this land is here only to offset the impact of uh, all this development that were happening. Well, you know, 20 years later, 
we've had tremendous growth. And so for the last few years, there has been a effort that has been made by a, a lot of folks to pave a toll road going right through it. Uh, and the point of doing that is so that you can get to the lands on the other side, which they want to build more houses and development in. And so uh, the citizens of Orange County put it on the ballot and said, hey, you know, we want to make sure that this is clear, that this is promised to us in perpetuity, and no one can touch this. And it passed by 86% of the citizens of the county, which is ridiculous. No one ever votes 86% of everything. But Democrats, Republicans alike, all still did not want this land to be touched. And still, the state government is, you know, has recently approved uh, putting a toll road through the southern part of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are the fights that we're having. Um, I spoke out against it. I actually, uh, there was a, um, our Florida Communities Trust, which is a uh, agency that deals with how we, you know, deal with these preserves. I spoke out at the meeting against development in this area because, you know, again, perpetuity has to mean something. <laughs> and <laughs> if, if you can make, well, just this one road or just this one development, there is always going to be this one road and this one development. So, we really have to act to make sure that you know we don't just develop everything and and you know i'm i'm not against development but i think it needs to be smart we need to try to develop up where we can rather than always developing out uh, we need to make sure that where we have set aside these lands we you know do what what we said we would do which is actually preserve them um because we're having all kinds of issues here. You know, we have environmental impacts from industry, which uh, is leading to things like red tide. Uh, red tide is um, basically a, a, you know, a toxic algae that's being spilled out into the, into yeah. the Gulf Coast. It's happened in several different occasions, and it causes mass die-off of, of fish. And it also ruins the tourist industry there because, you, I mean, you literally will smell this stuff if you go out there. It's, it, you know, you would not want to be a tourist and go to these beaches when they're covered in this stuff. So, you know, this stuff is happening. We're having um, water issues throughout the state as well. Brown water coming out of faucets and and parts of the district I'm running in. So, uh, you know, all of this uh, means to say that we need to be stewards of our environment. If there is one place that could suffer some of the worst impacts of climate change, it's Florida, because we are a coastal state. We don't have a very high, uh, uh, you know, our land is quite low. (laughs) It's very close to sea level. We actually have the lowest high point of any of the 50 states in the country. So it is incredibly important that we watch sea rise. The state government has been putting some money into resiliency measures, uh, basically, you know, measures to mitigate the effects of climate change. But I think not enough is being done about the cause of these problems. And uh, the, the way we do that is make sure that we really do invest. We, we should make this state, we're the, very proud of being the sunshine state. We should be the head of, you know, the, the top state for solar in the country. There's no reason we shouldn't be, right? We should be making sure that um, as we have development, it's smart and that it's not impacting our water or our soil or, you know, the many uh, species of plant and animal that call Florida home. There's no question about that. It's it's really a national treasure and, and I'd say a global one. So really appreciate your insightful comments of that. Now, Rishi, I 
cannot believe we are approaching the end of our time together. But I want to congratulate you on this groundbreaking campaign and the fact that in June, you qualified for the 2022 primary elections for the Democratic Party. And I know this was very meaningful for you and your family. And I might add for our diaspora, and I'm going to quote you, Quote, my family and I moved to the U.S. when I was 10 years old. It took me 10 years after that to become a U.S. citizen. I became a citizen on August 23rd, 2002. This is August 23rd, 20 years to the day that I became a citizen, and my name will be on the ballot in the primary election to be the candidate for my party, a proud moment for this immigrant, end quote. Now, I would say it's a proud moment for all of us that are listening to this, the community, the diaspora, and I think anyone who's going to listen to this and truly get inspired by you. Now, I want to ask you as we close out here, what would you say, not only to Floridians out there that might be listening or undecided voters, but really to anyone amongst our global audience who might be inspired by your story? Any parting words of wisdom or insight you want to offer And how can someone get involved in supporting you if they like what they hear? Well, thank you so much again for the opportunity. I I don't know how many words of wisdom I can share, but (laughs) (laughs) I I will certainly tell you a few thoughts. You know, I I am proud of the fact that this election day, which is August 23rd, is our primary, uh, our Democratic primary. Um, And Florida is a closed primary state, so you have to be a Democrat to vote um, in this election. And then whoever wins from here goes on to an election in November to see if we can do this. Um, I'm proud of that. That's 20 years exactly the day I became a citizen. I'll, I'll be on the ballot. So I really feel like win or loss, I've, I've won a lot <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, it, it, it is deeply meaningful for me to have this opportunity. And and I always say, you know, as a Desi, every time somebody drives by a sign that says Rishi Bhaga on it, you know, that does a lot for our community because people should know that, you know, we're here too. We are Americans as well. We have a voice also in this, um, you know, in, in, in this community and it, it sort of normalizes it. So, you know, I, I'm hopeful we'll win and I feel good about it. But at the same time, you know, this this continues to pave the path for anyone who comes after me. You know, it, Florida has never had a South Asian American who's been elected to our legislature uh, or anywhere in Tallahassee or any you know state office. So I think this is a great opportunity. I don't believe we have any Asian Americans in the legislature as it is. And, you know, this is a f- rapidly growing, uh, you know, segment of Florida's population. So, you know, we're, we're losing something by not having our community represented. So I do tell folks in our community that this is really not about me or my election or at all. Uh, This is about our community having a voice and making sure that, you know, that someone in state government knows us and is making sure that our thoughts on these issues are being presented. And that's just not happening right now. So I think it's really important to have that representation. This is not just tokenism or saying, oh, look, we have a South Asian there. You know, we really have issues. Uh, we have thoughts on things. We, especially when it comes to medical issues, for example, so many of our community are medical professionals. So our voice should be heard. Uh, when it comes to education, so many of us pride ourselves on our education. So our voice should be heard on education policy, on all of these different things. We need to have a voice. And that's really why I'm running. That's that's such an important reason to why I'm running. So I would certainly love anyone's support who's willing to give it. Of course, if you live here in District 35, which is the eastern part of Orange County or Osceola County, the um, or you know greater Orlando area, 
We would absolutely love to have your vote. And so please make sure you vote on or before August 23rd for the primary. Uh, and hopefully, you know, we can win this and move on to the main uh, election over in uh, November. But even if you're not somebody who lives in the in uh, the the district, you can still help. This is a community effort, and so that requires money uh, and a lot of money at that. Um, <laughs> we we've raised more money than our opponents, but you know it's kind of still never enough. <laughs> Even these <laughs> signs, you know, little things like yard signs, you know, we've got. hundreds of, you know, maybe thousands of them. But even still, uh, each one costs a whole lot of money. And so we end up spending thousands of dollars on on things like yard signs and, you know, making appearances. And we sent mailers out to everyone in the district who was a, you know, a a likely Democratic voter. That's cost, each one of those things costs thousands of dollars. And and we've had to, you know, put in our own money as well to do that. So uh, if you can help, Please feel free to go to rishibaga.com. You can donate there as well, and um, you know that that's a a, a, a tremendous help um, in in making sure that people get the word about our campaign because it's so important. But we are making strides. Um, the the last thing I'll say is, I was really excited that we found out late last night, and it was published in today's newspaper that our uh, campaign was endorsed by our main newspaper here in Orlando, the Orlando Sentinel. Oh so my that's goodness. huge. That's yeah. huge. That's yeah. absolutely amazing. Congratulations! Thank wow. you so much. It, it is. Huge. Yeah, it is. And and again, it's it's not about me or my campaign. Or, you know, or, or even just this campaign. It, it shows that the issues we're talking about matter. People are listening and people think we have the answers um, or at least are, are going the right direction or the right approach on this. I think there is a real desire to have common sense, you know, uh, solutions on things. And, and I've, I feel like that's what I've brought uh, in, in so much of my life. And I, I hope to be able to do, the, to do that for the people of Florida. Well, there's no question. If anyone's listened to this podcast episode, the one thing we can say for sure is your life experience and the events that have shaped you into who you are have created an immensely talented, well-spoken, informed problem solver. And that is what we so rarely see nowadays, not just pithy talking points, but you clearly, clearly have that aptitude for solving problems, bringing people together. And I think we need so much of that today, not only in the United States, but really across the world. And I cannot thank you enough for joining us today, Rishi Baga, Florida's Democratic candidate for House District 35. And as we stated before, his website is www.rishibaga.com. I'm going to have a link in the podcast notes. And I'd say to all the Desi community listening, this is your chance. Support the community. Trip in. You can hear that we have a truly deserving candidate here who really needs our support. So please, now is the time. And thank you again for joining us today, Rishi. Cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much, Sonia. I'm so thankful to have this opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. And really an honor to know you. Thank you. Thank you.